This is a Billy Joel A to Z special presentation. What was the first song you ever wrote? The first song I ever wrote. Oh, it was. Uh, I was in a bit. I was like 14. Well, I'd climb the highest mountain. And I'd swim the deepest sea My journey's end If I knew you were there at my journey's end Waiting for me <laughs> Now I can tell how much that you love me By the letters that you send And I'd go anywhere If I knew you were waiting there At my journey's end the first song now you're smiling wrote. when you sing that. You think? Do you think that's terrible? Do you? Yeah, do you do? It sucks because it's too basic <laughs> for you. It's just too what? It's so naff. It's just so stereotypical. And I climb the high. The words are cliched, and I the chord changes cliched. To see. Did you? Did you? The uh, poem is a stretch. But, did you think this was the greatest song ever that you wrote it when you wrote it? At the yeah, time? I did. Hi, I'm Alan Altman, and I'm Dave Juskow, and this is Billy Joel A to Z. Hello, everyone, and thank you for listening to another quality episode of Billy Joel A to Z. Today, we tackle the extremely unreleased track entitled <laughs> My Journey's End. This track kicks off the My Lives compilation album, and the sound quality is absolutely awful. I mean, you thought Artie Rip was bad. Yipes. <laughs> So why are we dedicating an entire episode to My Journey's End? Well, it's the same reason it begins the My Lives album. This is Billy Joel's first song he ever wrote at the ripe old age of 14. Now, I don't know what you were doing at 14, Alon, which, of course, was yesterday. But it, hello, is this on? Um, but uh, <laughs> actually, you were on television, I believe. Uh, weren't you hanging out? With the I was on TV or... at the age of 11. Come on, oh, that's man. Right, 14, that's right. I was washed up. I was doing drugs <laughs> underneath the Queensborough Bridge. <laughs> well, I was trying to get Menachem Begin and Anwar Sadat to sit down and start talking peace in the Middle East. <laughs> this is what I was doing. For... No, actually, I was on pins and needles waiting for the release of Superman, of course. That's what I was doing at 14. This guy was, uh, you know, already writing music. I, I see... Uh, Billy Joel, go, he, he was in this band called the Lost Souls, and he's going up to these guys. They hired him for the band. He's going up. I think I got a song idea, fellas. Now, I don't you know, it's just something I'm putting together. It's raw right now. And they're like, oh, look at this kid. How about this kid? <laughs> I think his voice had changed by then. <laughs> no, no, it's funnier the other way. I had you no actually can't idea. even tell in the song because like he sings it in such a strange voice. It doesn't sound like Billy Joel at all. Maybe it was his prepubescent voice. Is it him singing? Is it him? Yeah, of course it's him. Well, I mean, is it also somebody else? It sounds like a bunch of people. Yeah, I don't think this was the case where they had such good studio quality that they recorded the backing tracks afterwards with Billy's voice like he did when he was a solo artist. So I think it's definitely the other guys coming in on the um, harmonies. 
Yeah. Okay. Good. Yeah. Because I, I mean, I couldn't. There's no way I could tell it was him or anything. But you know, interesting that uh, his kind of his hero was Steve Winwood. Now it all kind of adds up. I had no idea he was in a band. He said he re- he wrote it at 14. He recorded it at 15. Yeah. Why did he wait so long? Why did he waste <laughs> so much time? Well, I think what happened was he wrote it, brought it to the band, and then the band got a recording contract for somehow, for some way, at 15 years old with Mercury Records, and that's when they recorded it. It It's probably something like he wrote it, and then a month later they were recording it, and he turned 15. Yeah, yeah, definitely. And I think the way they got this contract, I I was reading in his biography, um, so they were the Echoes, then they changed their name to the Lost Souls. No, then they changed their name to the Emeralds. And then they changed it to the Lost Souls. Oh, okay. <laughs> a lot of changes in this band. So the Echoes, Lost Souls, whatever. It was it was Billy and then this guy Jim Bossy and Bill Zampino, who were like the inspirations for James. Right. And then at some point, Bill, who was on drums, got replaced by this guy, Dave Boglioli. But oh, anyway. He was good. He was good. Boglioli was one of the top. They always say, you know, it's uh, Keith Moon, Ringo, Boglioli, <laughs> the best 60s drummers. <laughs> so they entered a competition, like a New York statewide battle of the bands kind of thing and they were actually the long island champions and they came in second statewide so they did really good and i think that's when they got the contract oh I, yes it makes sense they won a talent competition things haven't changed very much and they got a record deal now the problem is is that record deal when they got the record deal with mercury records which was a very big record company the record company asked them to change their name once again to the commandos right and then they dropped them, the record company, for some reason, which is why this recording was hard to find. And then they went back to the Lost Souls. <laughs> you know, I wonder when they were the commandos, if, if the manager was like, and also you guys can't wear underwear. <laughs> it's called going commando. It's like a new thing that the you know youth are doing. And we want you to be part of that craze. I wonder if there was any band that changed their name and then changed it back to the original name again. I mean, I wonder if that's happened multiple times. That probably has happened. Usually it's like in this case, they kept having to change their name because they would find out there were other bands that already had that name. Like there was some British band named the Lost Souls. That's why they had to go for Commandos briefly. But then they went back to the Lost Souls. So it's like at some point, I guess some bands just don't care. Well, I don't understand. Why didn't they just go on the Internet and find out if there was a lot? Oh, I see, I see it right. Right. Of course. Yeah, they should have called information and been like, yeah, can you get me uh, the names of all bands in the world right now? <laughs> Oh, uh, what I found what happened was that they went back to playing on Long Island. Everybody's fun time. And apparently their heated rivals were the Hassles. Did, did uh. you know that? Yeah. Apparently they had a rivalry with the Hassle, which is hilarious. That would be like you and me having a rivalry uh, for some God knows reason. And then we combined forces. They combined into a super group or what they thought. <laughs> would be a super group <laughs> and they were right the hassles are now the world's greatest rock band for yeah, 50 well, years running they were completely wrong and i guess they really all did hate each other and the hassles stole billy joel and that other douchebag so he joined the hassles then i think and, and also it was way more money for him he was making money with the hassles so well they yeah. also had a deal with what record company the hassles yeah Family Productions? No, Liberty Records. Interesting. Maybe that's why he had some sort of a 
you know, love for Liberty DeVito, even though he was, as we've found through the M's, he was not only mean to him, nasty, but asking for all that kind of stuff. Maybe he's like, but Liberty brings me back to a good time. That name brings me back to a good time. Maybe there it is. That's probably right. And that's probably why his favorite statue is the Statue of Liberty. <laughs> right. Which he uses in uh, one song. <laughs> I was going to say multiple songs, but isn't it just <laughs> one song? Oh, no, it's Staten Island Ferry. Sorry, I got confused. Yeah. <laughs> I got confused because I'm always thinking of the Staten Island Ferry and Statue of Liberty go hand in hand. Yeah, I don't know if he ever mentions the Statue of Liberty. Good point. We know he loves to make fun of this song. Definitely footage of him in multiple situations. Howard Stern, one of those Q&As where he's just making fun. People ask him what's the first song, and he remembers, and he makes it very clear that this song, My Journey's End, is his first song, and he's able to remember it and play it, and he really mocks it and mocks the lyrics, which is the beginning, I guess. Well, I'd climb the highest mountain, and you saw that Q&A where he's getting the people in the audience who've never heard the song before to sing it. That's how cliche he thinks it is. So I'd climb the highest mountain and swim the deepest See, <laughs> exactly. Yeah, it was he so was, funny when he did that. He he really hates the song. I knew, well, not hate. I think he just is ashamed that it's not up to the quality of his newer stuff. I don't know why anybody would be ashamed of writing a song at 14 and thinking it's supposed to be. I mean, I guess he was clearly some form of prodigy, which is obvious. But, you know, how do you get that embarrassed? I mean, his, he got a record contract at 14 or 15 and did record the song. I mean. The, the other band, and I assume they were, must have been all older, at least by a year or two, must have thought it was pretty good <laughs> that the new kid in the band wrote a song for them. Yeah. And I mean, because everyone was doing covers back then. So to have someone who could like write a song that is a pretty good representation of one of these like early Beatles songs or any other early like um, British invasion kind of music was pretty cool. That's that's the way I would write a song. And right now I'd climb the highest mountain and swim the deepest sea. Uh, I, I like the way he uh, describes it to Howard Stern, though. He's like, it's so stereotypical. The words are cliche. The chord change is cliche. The poem is a stretch. He has nothing good to say about it. <laughs> no, but it's fun listening to him play it, you know, from all that long ago, which meanwhile in the 90s was only 30 years ago. Now it would be what 50 or 60 years ago, I guess. Yeah, I did the math because in 1993 at that Q&A when he plays it, and it seems amazing, like, wow, he really remembers this first song. It was 28 years after he wrote it. And right now, 2022 is 29 years after his last stuff on River of Dreams. So we're farther from River of Dreams than he was back then to this 14-year-old Billy Joel song. Oh, that's interesting. You know, what's funny is that there's a song called My Journey's End from 1934. And it's just funny because in the 60s, they were probably making fun of that song. Oh, how old is this song? And now, you know, we make fun of the one from the 60s. It's <laughs> It just yeah. never ends. You're always going to make fun of some old crap. I saw actually on YouTube, I was trying to look if there were covers of people playing this song, and there was like this guy and girl singing some song named My Journey's End, which maybe was that 30s version. It wasn't Billy's, but it opened up also with a line about like sailing the sea or something. Huh. That's weird. It's like such an obvious song, I guess, like a song about a journey. Uh, let's see. I would uh, sail on the ocean. You know what this made me think of, though, because it was his first song. It made me think of first of all after watching the beatles get back when the beatles were jonesing for songs to do you know they needed songs in two weeks right would they have to come up with 20 songs in, in a month was it or two weeks 
I haven't seen the documentary yet. Oh, in the documentary, you know, they're trying to make the Let It Be album. They're trying to do a concert. They're trying to come up with like 20 new songs in like two weeks. So they go back to, well, let's relook at like the ones we were doing when we were kids. Mm-hmm. And, and, and him and Lennon, or maybe it was John, but he's like, let's relook at this. It's called One, One After 909. And they were toying with it and maybe sang it at a club or something in 1957, 1960. He goes, let's take another look at that. And that's on Let It Be. They retook their early song, which probably was going nowhere and just like, look, we need we need content. I'm surprised that at some point. But see, that's the thing about Billy. the reason why he quit music, I guess, is because he, he wasn't trying to rush songs because I could see him going back to this song. He's like, well, you know, that was never really truly recorded. I mean, they didn't know where there was recordings where if he was recording back then, he could have totally redone this song as a lot of musicians do. Yeah, I mean, you have all this stuff you wrote. It's like a comic going back to old notebooks and seeing, did I have any material I wrote that just wasn't hashed out completely? Exactly. So like on an innocent man, he could have said, oh, here's this early 60s style song. I could redo it. But he he never did that, which is good because I'm not sure what he could do with this song to really make it any more than what it is well i mean we were just doing moving out the other day and we knew he had a completely different melody the laughing in the rain melody for that and then he just made it this unbelievable kick-ass melody so he certainly had the wherewithal to make a different melody and then i'm sure he could have tweaked some of the lyrics to make them more billy joel-esque yeah well that's the thing moving out he already had like a really good set of lyrics a cool story this song he'd have to not just tweak it would be like a full-scale explosion and starting over well it's just kind of funny since his heroes the beatles had done that you would think he would think of doing that too there's also a very interesting reference in this well not 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 in this but uh in my mind i was thinking of spinal tap and it's just so funny i know they're not a real band but there's you know a, a, a scene where Rob Reiner asked them, what's the first song you guys ever did? And remember, they were friends. They, they, they built it on so many different kinds of bands, you know, the, the, the fake story of Spinal Tap. Mm-hmm. And they were, uh, you know, Christopher Guest and Michael McKean were friends when they were like eight or nine. And they wrote their first song called All the Way Home. And it, it's so amazing because it's a fake band. But that point of the documentary seems so real. Yeah. And they're like, what's the first song you ever wrote? Like, oh, God, um, need some black coffee uh maybe we can come up and then they start doing it and they do it so realistically i mean this is what makes the movie so amazing mm-hmm. so realistically that you're like no i i am believing this is a real band and this was their first song and they make a fake first song and it's like this one it's just like <laughs> my journey's end i mean it's 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 it, and, and they even make fun of like and i think we just repeated the song a hundred times you guys were schoolmates I mean, we we don't, we, we, we're not university material. What's that on your finger? It's my gun. What are you doing with your finger? I might need it later. And put it on the table, it's terrible. <laughs> well, forget it on the table. How old were you guys? How old were you guys when you yeah. met? Uh, eight years old. Eight or nine. 
you and hey, and I was seven. That's right. And do you remember the first song that you guys ever wrote together? All the way home, probably. Yeah. All the way home. Yeah. Can you remember a little bit of it? I'd love to hear. Christ. <laughs> Some black coffee, maybe. Yeah. <laughs> How's it go? <laughs> Beside the railroad track And I'm waiting for that train to bring you back Bring me back If she's, if, if, if she's not on the 519 Then I'm gonna know what sorrow means And I'm gonna cry, cry, cry All the way home 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 yeah. Cry, cry, all the way cry, home. cry, 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 yeah. all the way home. Yeah, fairly simple. It's about six, <coughs> six words in the whole song. You Sounds know, like a feed them over and over. It's like what Billy is making fun of his thing, and that's and that was in '93, and so now '83. No, no, no. I'm saying Billy was doing that Q and A in '93. Oh yeah, yeah. I think in Spinal Tap, the Howard thing later. So they didn't even see something like that because you could see where they saw something like that and then said, "Oh, we should do that." And they just made it up. And it's just that's what's so realistic about it, let alone the fact that the Beatles. That's why I kept thinking the Beatles one was not all the way. What's a, a, the two of us or what wasn't it called? The just two of us. Isn't that what it's called? I, I'm that's getting one of the songs. Figuring, just the two of us and two of us. But yes, I thought because it's called all the way home. I mean, that's in the lyrics of the two of us, I think. So that's why I keep mixing up the spinal tap. And the Beatles, let alone the fact in Spinal Tap where they keep changing the names of the band all the time. It is exactly like yeah. the Echoes, the Emeralds to the Commandos to the Lost Souls. I mean, it's it's like as if they were just concentrating on Billy Joel. Talk a little bit about the history of the group. I understand, Nigel, you and David originally started the band uh, back in when was it? 1964. Well, before that, we were in different groups. I was in a group called The Creatures, which was a skiffle group. I was in Lovely Lads. Yeah. And then we looked at each other and said, so well, we might as not? well join up, you know. And uh, So we became uh, the originals. Right. And uh, we had to change our name, actually. Well, there's, uh, a, there's another group in the East End called The Originals. And uh, we had to rename ourselves. And the new originals. New originals. Yeah. And then uh, they became the regulars. They changed their name back to the regulars. And we thought, well, we could we could go back to the originals about what's the point. We became the Thamesmen at that point. <laughs> the, yeah, but it's particular story. It, it's very Spinal Tap. Right. It's just it's something that happened to so many bands in the 60s, I guess. They had these kind of origin stories. So Billy Joel was not unique in that sense. No, I guess not. But sometimes we forget that Billy Joel not only paid his dues, because sometimes you just think, well, Cold Spring Harbor had hits, you know, had one hit. And we we know in doing the podcast and everything that it didn't work out very well. But to us, I mean, there's so much good stuff on Cold Spring Harbor. You're just thinking, well, he just got the contract and it didn't work, you know, it, and it worked out for him. You know, because then he did Piano Man right after. So, but no, this guy, we 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 don't know a lot of the backstory. We don't think about it that he was in three other bands before getting to Cold Spring Harbor. Yeah, and and Attila as well. I don't know if that was in your count of three. Yeah. Okay, Lost Attila, Hassles, Lost Souls, 
Okay. I thought you because it has so many different names. Like he's in 12 bands, basically. Yeah. So there was a guy, he was a musician, he was trying to make it, and he wasn't even trying to make it as a singer-songwriter. He was trying to make it just in a band because I think he thought that's the way it's supposed to work. And then, yeah, yeah, he tried it every every possible way. And uh yeah, you're right. Cause like we think of Cold Spring Harbor, like wow, he was writing these songs, it's his very first efforts, but like no, for seven years before that, he was struggling in different ty- types of ways, writing different types of music, wearing silly outfits. Yeah, uh, before he finally yeah. decided <laughs> Silly to go on his own. Yeah, yeah those Austin Power like outfits. <laughs> I was thinking about the Attila with the uh, I don't know the Viking helmet and all that. Oh, I was saying I saw one from the '60s where they're wearing the actual Austin Powers like ruffled tuxedo thing. Oh yeah, it's a great look. That's that's 1967 right there. Yeah, and that's the other thing. Sometimes we forget, like when you hear a song like this, that well, Billy Joel was around. You know, we forget because we always think he, you know, we he, we think of him in the '70s. And, you know, you're just thinking of him in the, kind of the late 70s. But the guy, you know, he was he was around and making music in the 60s when, you know, all that, for me, bad music was coming out. And certainly this song is a 60s song. My Journey's End is definitely a 60s song. Sounds very Beach Boys-esque. Yeah. And, you know, what's interesting is that, uh, so this song was recorded in 1965, and Sgt. Pepper by the Beatles didn't come out till 1967, which means we know for a fact that this song was not inspired by A Day in the Life. <laughs> How can that be? What do you know? You know what? He must have gotten an early copy of that or something. Or he had a time machine. <laughs> <laughs> well, it certainly seems when somebody writes these kind of songs or has this kind of prowess that they do have some form of time machine or they're cheating. I mean, it's just when you can play like this write songs like this, write lyrics and music like this. And really just, I wonder, you know, I mean, if you don't have a Phil Ramone, do you still work it out? Do the Beatles work it out without George Martin? Probably because they're that talented, but uh, you know, those producers also make it happen. Very important. Yeah. Right. The right combination of producer and artist takes the artist to the next level. I think the Beatles would have still been great, but not nearly the things that they ended up doing. That's the thing, you know, that's uh, that's the amazing meetings. And Phil Ramone certainly was very, very important and influential in not having this mess of my journey's end. <laughs> I mean, there <laughs> it is. Or, or Artie Rip after that, who clearly didn't know how to press an album or, uh, you know, thank God for Phil Ramone. Thank God for but, lots of lots of people can say thank God for Phil Ramone, including Julian Lennon. Yes, that is correct. Yeah. As we learned. I, uh, I found one more version of this song that I don't know if you saw it, but uh, Billy Joel sang this on Alec Baldwin's podcast really? in 2012. Yeah. So Alec Baldwin has his WNYC podcast called Here's the Thing. Yeah. Um, probably not anymore because of his troubles. But anyway, at the 12 minute mark of this episode with Billy Joel, he asked Billy, what was your first song? And Billy plays it again, like he does for Howard Stern. He plays like the first half of it. Um, but what ruins this version is Alec Baldwin decides to sing like falsetto backing vocals. So whenever Billy says like, you know, I would swim the deepest sea, then in the background, there's Alec being like, deepest sea. <laughs> and it's like, just let Billy do his thing. What are you doing here? Yeah, Why do you suppose he would think that would be OK? I, I think maybe they have a good relationship. They're both Long Island guys. They, they were singing during the episode. They also sing other stuff. They sing Inagata De Vida together. So I think they were very comfortable with each other. Well, I'd climb the highest mountain and I'd swim the deepest sea if I knew you were there at my journey's end waiting for me. Well, I can tell how much that you love me by the letters that you send. 
my journey's end. That's out. <laughs> anyway, we felt, folks, that it was important to talk about Billy's first song that he definitely, you know, references in multiple interviews and stuff. And we thought in the podcast, it's normally we probably wouldn't have picked a, a song like this because the quality is so poor. Right. Yeah. Alan, that's uh, we decided it's his first song. We got to do it. Yeah, it's the it's the very first one. And um, yeah, I mean, the quality stinks. Like you've said, uh, it's very scratchy, but it kind of gives it a cool feel. Actually, it sounds ghostly. It's so echoey and scratchy. It sounds it reminds me of like if you're watching one of those movies about like kind of like a supernatural movie about like, oh, some missing teens in 1962. And then like someone's investigating and they come to like an abandoned band shell. And then all of a sudden they see like a ghost band playing. <laughs> this would be like the song that they'd be playing. Are you talking about the groovy ghoulies? You're gonna see how funny they can be Cause it's time for the groovy ghoulies show <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> they were a ghost band. Well, I think that should about do it for today. We certainly don't want to make this a long one because we're very much looking forward to our next podcast, which is not Billy Joel's first song. It is way into when he became awesome. Yeah, one of his best songs, My Life. Yes, My Life. My Life. Can we just do that for like a half hour on the next oh, episode? We'll be doing that, I'm pretty sure. So, uh, <laughs> Maybe that'll be the parody, actually. I can make it for Eddie. All right, now we're talking. <laughs> so look forward to that next time on Billy Joel A to Z. Yeah.